don't mind pick a different song out than that one. Uh, I should have given you more instruction on that, but find one that's a little more uplifting and encouraging versus kind of doom and gloom, if you don't mind, and we can announce it right after the lesson. Sorry to be a little unorthodox with that, but that would be that song would be a little anticlimactic with what we're going to talk about this morning. So sorry to put you on the spot for that. The song Seth just led, I appreciate it. Uh, the verses at the top of that song, Psalm chapter 130 and verse 5. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. It's an attitude the psalmist had of looking for the Lord and how we should adjust our lives and our lives and the way we live our lives and the things that we do should reflect the fact that we're waiting and watching for that to come. And Carrie said, we're going to talk about the second coming of Christ this morning. We've been studying from the book of 1 Thessalonians, and uh, I like to do a review at the start of these of what we've talked about. I think this morning, for the sake of time, I don't have time to do that. I've got a lot of material to get through, and I'm a little concerned about the length anyway, so we're going to do as quick as we can, and I'm not trying to... Uh, compete with Danny for who's the longest preacher, so we're going to try to get through this and uh, hopefully can do it effectively and uh, be interesting to you guys this morning. Last time we spoke, we talked about the first half of chapter 4 in 1 Thessalonians where his, uh, he kind of shifted his focus in how he was uh, talking to them. and He had moved on from this idea of kind of commendation and, and praising them for how they were behaving and to more, to more of a, an attitude of kind of an encouragement and motivation and keep it up, keep up the good work and all these things you're doing, do it, do it better, keep doing it better. In verse number one of chapter four, he said, we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So he talked about... Uh, Pleasing God in that chapter, and that's what we talked about last time, what it meant to please God and all the things about keeping his commandments, following his instruction, doing the things he actually asked us to do. And we talked about how he spent such a focus in that chapter on sexual immorality and the, the, the challenge that was for uh, those men and women of the day and the challenge it was for all of these congregations that he, rose to, that he wrote to, how we should follow his instructions, guard against those things. And we talked about brotherly love and how they should continue to do that. And he says, do, you know, we, all of this led up to the fact that we want you to do this so that you walk properly before God, so that your lives and your behaviors and your example that you set is walking properly before God. And we left off in, in verse number 12 last time, and so that's where we're going to pick up today. As Brother Kerry said, we're going to talk about the second coming of Christ and, and having hope in his return. And he, uh, he really starts here in verse number 13 where he shifts from even that idea of motivation and encouragement into very specific instruction and conversation about the second coming of Christ here. And we've alluded to this a couple times in our studies that this is probably, at least by my estimation, the most comprehensive set of scriptures tied together on the second coming of Christ, both here in the end of chapter 4, the first part of chapter 5, and then even into 2 Thessalonians, his second letter that he writes to them. We're going to talk a little bit about that today as well, but it's a really comprehensive view of what the second coming is. And so we want to look at that this morning, put it in context of why he's even talking to them about all this stuff, and hopefully you can uh, come away built up in the faith. If you're confused about 
the resurrection and the second coming and what all of that looks like or means. Hopefully you'll be educated by that this morning. And if this is stuff you've heard, hopefully you'll be built up in the faith and encouraged to and increased in your faith as we as we studied through these things. One of the, I think one of the most relevant parts of the discussion about the second coming, certainly in the context of what he's talking to the Thessalonians about here, but even just in general as we think about the second coming in our times is the fact that not much has changed. He's dealing with, here with the Thessalonians, really with misinformation about this event. And we'll demonstrate that this morning, hopefully with the scriptures too. But, you know, he felt the need to kind of hit this head on. And I suppose Paul was a little bit unsettled by what he saw in that congregation with how they perceived the event, what they talked about about it, what people were telling them about it, and he felt the need to address it. And, you know, really some 2,000 years later, things aren't that much different. It seems like, what, every four or five years you hear this new thing come up in the media that some new person that's, uh, you know, famous in religious circles or whatever has put a date and a time on the second coming of Christ. And, uh, you know, and then so the world watches and waits for that day to come, and we know it's not going to come, and everybody knows it's not going to come, but they still watch and wait, and that date and time comes, and it passes by just like all the times before. And so this misinformation is going to be going on for centuries. And Paul addressed it then, and let's go to the Scriptures and address it now. Let's understand what the Scriptures say so that when some guy stands up on Fox News or MSNBC or whatever your flavor is and says Christ is coming again, we can test that against the Scriptures and know that this person's probably wrong in what they're saying. And we can say, let's educate people on when that might really happen. Do we really understand if it could happen and when it could happen, which we don't, and, but what it looks like when it comes and why we even need to be thinking about that. Why does that need to be on our mind? And I hope you'll be benefited by this study this morning. And in fact, he starts this in chapter 4, but he really has kind of woven it into the language that he's written all throughout this letter. If you remember back to chapter 1, we talked about how he was talking about uh, them being the model congregation, the Thessalonians, how they were kind of doing things right. And in verse number 9, he says, for they them, talking about people outside of that congregation, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So he's not only committing them on the idea that, hey, you live in a pagan, idol-worshiping culture, and the gospel had an impact on you, and you decided and made a decision that you were going to serve God. And as part of that, you made a decision to leave those idols behind that you were going to serve him, and as part of that, you're going to wait for him to return. And as we sing, this idea is woven into Christianity that something should be on our minds is waiting for the Lord to return, and he told them that. In chapter 2, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So he's talking about his relationship specifically with the Thessalonians and how much he cared for them. He had spent some time with them as he passed through there on that missionary journey and built this good relationship and the bond that they had through the church. And he said, what is our joy before the Lord? It's you. But, but when is it? It's at his coming. And so he's starting to weave this language in for them about the second coming. In chapter 3, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. 
so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father when? At the coming of our Lord Jesus. So he's talking about um, this whole idea of pleasing God, and we talked about uh, continuous improvement, how we should continue to get better. He said, keep getting better. And he talked about how he desired to see them. Remember, he was taken away from them. He was run out of the city and how he desired to go back and see them again. And so he, as he's talking about all this affection that he has for them and the way he wants them to behave, all of this, it's with an eye on the Lord's return. And so I think it's important that we recognize that, that as we kind of dive off into this study this morning, how he's kind of setting it up and how important it was for him and how he put everything he taught them in the context of the Lord is coming back. And the way that you present yourself, the way that you live your life, the example you set for other people, and the things that you do is with an eye on that happening because it's coming. And it's really interesting. And so now we move into the second half of this chapter four is really when he dives off uh, into this. And it's something that was, as I studied this and got deeper and deeper into it, I became convinced that clearly this was on his mind as he wrote this letter, this whole second coming thing. And so whether there was a real problem with it, whether it was whispers, whether it was ignorance, just misinformation, he knew he had to address it. And so he hits it head on. So we're going to pick up in verse number, uh, chap- verse number 13 of chapter 4 now, where we left off in 12 last time. Verse number 13, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, Paul dives off into this topic and basically talks about misinformation from the start. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed about these that died. Apparently, they were, they were uninformed or else he wouldn't have wanted them to be informed about it. So whether that's just some people in their view of dead brothers and sisters, relatives, whatever, those in Christ, he had to clear this up right away. He said, I don't want you to be informed about those who are dead. And I don't want you to grieve like those do that have no hope. And we think about what is the view of death that the world has? You know, you think about atheists or agnostics or people that don't believe in a heaven and a hell or an afterlife or that there's anything more except for this life. What does death look like to them? It's a, it's a very pitiful existence. It's something that there is no hope in. And you see that in the world. If you see, if you've ever been to a funeral outside the church or somebody you know that doesn't have religion, you see that in the way people grieve. You see that in the way they act, in the way they behave. And they don't know how to deal with that. And there's no hope in that. And he is uneasy about that. And he doesn't want them to grieve the way the world does. And let's be clear, he's not saying there's no sorrow in that. We're all humans. We've all experienced that with loved ones, and we've been to funerals, and we've experienced death. And it would be foolish for us to say that that means we shouldn't have any sadness about those events. We know it's just not true. We know human emotion exists, and we know we're going to cry, and we know we're going to miss people. But we also have an eye on the other side, and we know that there's more to it than that. And that's the hope that he's talking about here. And he says, don't grieve like those that don't have hope. I don't want you to be uninformed about this. And that's why we're going to talk about all this. That's why I'm going to teach you about all this stuff. What it does mean is there's hope for the Christian. It means there's more to life than just death. 
it means there's something after death, and it means that we have something to look forward to, and it means that the Lord is going to come back and take us home. And we're going to talk about that today, and we're going to demonstrate that. And I hope that that's something that you view as encouraging. I hope that it's something that you look forward to. You know, that whole idea around death and what's after, is, it's foreign to us. It's something we don't understand. But as Christians, it's our job to be educated enough in the Scriptures to know that that is a good thing. Blessed in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. There's something on the other side, and he doesn't want them to grieve like those without hope. And so he shifts in that. Now, the rest of this chapter, he pretty much shifts to the second coming stuff. And it seems a bit odd to me how he went from all of this talk about, you know, the model congregation, building influence, his behavior amongst them, how they should continue to improve, how they should please God, all these things we've talked about. And then all of a sudden, he stops on a dime and goes into the second coming stuff. And it seems a little bit out of place. And in context of 1 Thessalonians on its own, I don't think we get a clear picture of why he does that. But I think he does kind of hint to that in 2 Thessalonians. So we're going to bounce into 2 Thessalonians a little bit this morning and start to bring some of it in as those two letters were by all accounts, written fairly close to each other in time, uh, in terms of the overall timeline of when these writings happened. It's pretty clear that he wrote them close together. Um, I don't have a date for you in terms of how far off they were, but the content of the letters is very similar. He's dealing with the same mindsets and attitudes in both of them, and he addresses this subject in both the letters too. And so we're going to spend a decent chunk of time in 2 Thessalonians this morning, we can't get through all this today, and so it's going to be at least two studies. Uh, but today we're going to really dive into this why, the why of, why of why he's talking to them about this. And that's the, the question that I hope to answer this morning and demonstrate with the Scriptures of why he's really tackling this with them. In 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 2, in verse number 1, he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being, together, being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of, the, day of the Lord has come. So there's our color. There's, there's the why he's addressing this, and that's the misinformation part of all this. So apparently there was somebody prophesying or speaking publicly or talking about it. He even seems to indicate that somebody even wrote a letter that, that was counterfeit um, to the effect that it came from Paul or one of the other men that, that was working with Paul. You know, somebody delivered a letter. I don't know if it was signed Paul, if they just made it appear that way or whatever, but with some kind of misinformation about the second coming. And so that's why this is on his mind and his heart. Now, if you remember back, the Thessalonians and the events surrounding the forming of this congregation, remember how we talked about the persecution that is described? Acts chapter 17, when Paul came through uh, Thessalonica, and it talks about all, you know, many, some Jews believed, many women, all these people that became members of the church, and immediately the persecution set in. Paul was run out of town. Remember the events that happened at the house of Jason, how they dragged Jason and his family out into the streets, and we're looking for Paul, and we're looking for every reason they could to stop this movement and hinder this movement. And so all of this happened in the midst of heavy, heavy persecution. And so there were strong forces working against the church here. 
And so it would be easy to be uninformed. You think about a, new, a newly formed congregation and everything that they had heard. You know, they lived in a, in a pagan, idol-worshiping culture, so some of this stuff was very foreign to them. And as a newly formed congregation, it must have been a challenge to deal with all the persecution they dealt with and learn of some of these things like a second coming. You know, it's easy to learn and hear something where somebody says you should do this to be a better person. That makes sense even on a human level, not even religion aside. But you hear things about a resurrection, a second coming. Sometimes that's challenging. And it must have been challenging for hear that. So there were, for them to hear that. So there were certainly strong forces working against them here. And of course, through the lens of the Scriptures, we know that the second coming didn't happen in their lifetimes. We haven't seen it in our lifetime. And so we have the benefit of all the Scriptures. But again, that kind of confusion still exists today. Anytime one of these guys stands up and makes a prediction, it becomes confusing to people. There's people that really believe or wonder if that's true, if that's really going to happen. There's people that worry about it if that's going to happen. Why? Because they're ignorant. They're uninformed. And that's what Paul wanted to do. He wanted to inform them about those events and what's going to happen. Now, these next set of verses in 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 2 here, are, I think, up there with some of the most challenging scriptures in the Bible uh, to understand, to define and debate what is being talked about, to come to anything conclusive on what he's talking about. And so we need to read them this morning to talk about the things we're talking about, but this could be a whole series of studies and lessons on its own. And, and even if we did that whole series of studies and lessons on its own, we would, at the end, not have anything conclusive to say about it. So we're going to read it, and we're going to talk about it, and we're going to talk about some of the prevailing thoughts on what he's talking about there. Uh, but what we're really going to talk about is why is he talking about it? as I've said. What's the why? Why is he using that? What's he trying to get across to them? And so I'm going to do my best to keep our focus on that this morning as we talk about this. And then if this is something that piques your interest, you're just going to have to dive in and go spend months on it to get to an inconclusive opinion like I have. So uh, that's, just, that's just what it is. It kind of is what it is. And so we're going to dig in. In verse number three, he says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, before we move on, I want to point out, again, he's talking about deception. Don't be deceived. Don't let any man deceive you about this, right? And why? He says, for that day will not come unless these other things happen. So I want to point out the fact that what he's doing here is marking time for them. He's marking time for the Thessalonians because they had been told that the day of the Lord had come. Some of them were concerned about that, that it had already come. Now, I don't know the thought process there as to why they, you know, I suppose we could think it comes today if we're ignorant and don't know what that looks like. If somebody's telling us it's already come, it's like, man, I missed it. What? If you don't know what that looks like and the events that occur with that, I suppose you can be uninformed about that. So he said, don't be deceived. And all this stuff I'm about to tell you is to prove to you that it has not come yet. So as tough and challenging as this is, the point is to demonstrate that the day of the Lord had not come for them and to set their mind at ease about that and to give them comfort in that. Okay, so he goes on, verse number five. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, 
I told you these things. So as he, as he formed that congregation and spent time with them, they'd already talked about this, and he's calling their memory to that. Do you not remember we talked about this? I'm going to remind you about it. This stuff's important. I don't want you to be ignorant about it. I don't want you to be deceived about it, so I'm going to remind you about it. And do you know what is restraining him, talking about this man of lawlessness, now so that, we, that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. It's a mouthful. It's a, it's a, it's a lengthy passage. It's a challenging passage, and it's difficult to understand. What is this rebellion that he's talking about? What is this man of lawlessness? King James called it the man of sin. What is all this stuff? What is he talking about here? And I'll tell you, there's a lot of really intelligent people uh, inside the church and outside the church, scholars, Bible students, preachers, evangelists, Christians that have 50 or 60 years experience in the scriptures that have studied this and talked about this, and they can't agree on it. It's just something that is really difficult. And so I'm going to be up front and say the only conclusive thing I've come to is that nobody can be conclusive about this, that you just can't get there. It's difficult. Now, people try to make their arguments, their debates about what they think it is. And I will say that, you know, you go to Google and stuff like this, you can get all sorts of crazy answers. And it's really interesting. You Obviously, people with good intentions, uh, sincere intentions on diving into these topics, and they end up all over the board on what he's talking about here. But I will say the one thing that is pretty unanimous amongst all those people is that they all actually acknowledge that you can't get to a conclusive opinion on this, which is pretty stunning for a bunch of academics. So it's, it's hard to do. It's just tough stuff, and it's hard to get to a firm belief on this. But remember, he's trying to tell them that it hasn't come yet. And so there's some event here, and I'm convinced that whoever or whatever this is, whether it's a specific individual, which some people believe, or whether it's an ideology or an idea or a belief system, I'm convinced that the Thessalonians knew enough about what he was talking about to understand it. He was giving them this marker so that, they would, so that he could demonstrate to them that the second coming has not occurred. He wouldn't present them something that is totally foreign to them, to them to defend his position that the second coming has not come. So that's something I'm convinced of, that, that they, were, they had an awareness about all this stuff he's talking about, this man of lawlessness and this idea of lawlessness. They had an awareness of this enough to put it in context in a timeline to know that the second coming has not actually occurred yet. And he was demonstrating to them that they could take comfort in that. So let's you know, it's really interesting to discuss these things and debate them. We've been doing it for a couple months here, you know, talk, talking to a bunch of guys about it, getting opinions, getting ideas. It's really interesting to hear really smart people have so varying views on this kind of stuff, and it's fun to talk about and discuss and debate and make arguments for which way you land on this stuff. 
But let's not lose sight of the fact that the purpose is not for us to have those big debates and stuff. It's, I don't believe he's giving us some big, you know, biblical mystery that's for us to figure out 2,000 years later that, you know, that we're supposed to dive in and figure out. Yeah, we want to study that stuff, and we want to dive in, and we want to talk about it, but it's kind of one of those we can lose sight of the forest for the trees kind of a deal. If we spend all our time just trying to figure out who this is, we miss the point of why he's talking to them about it in the first place. He wants them to know the second coming has not occurred. He wants them to have hope in the resurrection. He wants them to have hope in life after death, and he wants them to be encouraged by that and to be able to wait for the Lord in a positive light. It's a positive thing, and that's his purpose here. So I want to give a brief overview of some of the more prevailing thoughts about who this is. Um, If you haven't studied any of this stuff before, maybe this is just kind of planting some seeds and giving you an idea you can go dig around and and start to look at it on your own, but uh, I kind of feel like we would be remiss if we didn't at least kind of go over the, some of the prevailing thought on that, and then you can use that in your own studies, make up your own mind, form your own thought process on that. I, I want to be, be careful about encouraging a congregation to form opinions, because generally speaking, we try to stay away from opinions and stick to scriptures, but I'm convinced at the end of the day, an opinion is about all that you can have on this. It's, you can base it in as many facts as you can find, but at the end of the day, it's only going to be a strong opinion. So um, with that said, who is this? Who is this man of sin, this man of lawlessness? You know, some of the prevailing thoughts, the, a lot of more popular, especially more recently, if you look back 30, 40 years, it seems like... You know, I would use the term old school in context of my life, but old school preachers and Bible scholars um, don't subscribe to this as much as maybe some newer generational people. But a lot of those types of people will view this as the so-called Antichrist. And Trevor hit on this in his First John series, and we're about to hit on it a whole bunch, I think, in October in our Revelation studies. And really this second coming discussion really leads into the revelation stuff pretty good in general and hopefully you know after we do this study and do that study in october then we'll have a lot more information about all this kind of stuff and um i know you're going to be benefited by that the guys are putting in a ton of work on that we're really excited about that october series as well but some people think this is the antichrist that we read about the antichrist that we read about in the scriptures now the the cliff notes version of that is the antichrist is not one guy there's not one guy that's going to take that title and own it and, and, and run with it. So I don't, I don't believe this is talking about the Antichrist, even in the context of how the Scriptures talks about the Antichrist. Some people subscribe to the idea that this is a reference to the Roman Empire. You know, you read a lot about Roman rule in these times uh, and the history that's associated with that. A lot of those Caesars, like Nero Caesar, some people specifically believe this was Nero Caesar. Others just believe it's the Roman Empire in general. Um, again, that's one that I don't subscribe to as much because he talks about, as we read, he talks about when the Lord returns, this person's going to be destroyed. And so Nero Caesar's been gone a long time, so either we miss the Lord's return or that can't be the case. Um, I don't think there's as strong an argument. Some people argue that this might be the Jews uh, or Judaism in general, the Jews' rejection of Jesus. Um, You know, you think about in context of the Thessalonians, what happened there, the Jews are who ran them out of town. The Jews are who rejected Paul and the others. And that idea, 
could he be talking about Judaism? I, I don't tend to think so, but you can kind of see at least how the thought trail leads to some discussion about that. Pretty interesting. Probably one of the more popular, and I would say within the Church of Christ, um, and I'm using that word a little bit loosely to mean churches of Christ everywhere, class churches, one-man minister churches, any, any congregation that would identify as a church of Christ, I would say the, the more prevailing opinion is that this is talking about Catholicism um, and the seat of the Pope. And probably if, if you dig into this stuff and you just sit down and marry it with you know, some of these uh, proposed options, uh, for lack of a better way to say that, Catholicism probably fits the bill better than most of the other ones. I personally am not there yet that it's Catholicism. I, I lean toward a camp that thinks maybe it's more of a general idea of lawlessness. Um, the, the way he talks about it, you think about the Catholic Church in context of the Thessalonians. I have a hard time getting there that that makes a lot of sense to them. Maybe they knew about it. Some of that was in work. He talks about lawlessness already being at work there. Um, to me, that makes sense that it's, you know, a general rebellion against the truth and some of that kind of stuff. Pretty fascinating stuff. If you read 1 John chapter 3, I sent this to Trevor last night, but I, I caught on to this a little bit late in my study, so I haven't really chased the rabbit trail in a lot of depth, but uh, especially if you read the ESV translation of 1 John 3 and 4, it, it sounds a lot like the language he's using here about the lawlessness. And so those are kind of the prevailing ideas and the prevailing thoughts of who this could be. Regardless of who it is, there's a generality about it that matters, right? It's this lawlessness, this idea of going against God and what he's asked us to do and the things that he's asked us to do. You know, it's a rebellion, a falling away. There's a lot of talk about the apostasy. I don't know how much I think Trevor's going to hit on a lot of that kind of stuff too, so it's going to be really good to study all that kind of stuff. But it's a general rebellion against God. But whatever it is, remember the Thessalonians had to be able to put it in context with their time. He's defending the fact that the Lord has not come. And so what's important about it? What do we, if we don't lose the forest for the trees, what do we gain from this? And I think there's a couple of specific things. We kind of said them, but I want to just put them here in a list. A, it has not happened relative to their time period, relative to our time period. But the same argument may not be used for our time period. It has not happened. And one important thing I want to call out on this He's saying the second coming, the day of the Lord, cannot happen until this rebellion, until the man of loss, until all that. He's not necessarily saying that the minute those happen, the Lord's coming back. He's just saying those are out there, and I'm trying to prove to you that it hasn't come yet because that stuff hadn't happened. When that stuff happens, it could be the next day. It could be the next month, the next year. It could be thousands of years. And so we got to be careful not to try to tie all that stuff and really try to pigeonhole it into the conversation. The second thing is that it provides context for those guys. We kind of already said that. It provides context of a time period. If you're looking at events on a timeline, the Thessalonians could have looked at this and said, okay, this is our lives. We're hearing that the Lord has come back. You're telling us about these events that are going to happen that we're familiar with, and the second coming is not going to happen until those do, and so we can have comfort in that. It gives us some context in the time, time frame. It'll happen before the Lord, re these, these events happen before the Lord returns. And then as I said earlier, I believe the Thessalonians 
had some frame of reference for what he was talking about, whether it was a specific man or an office or an organization or a condition, a worldly condition, a condition of sinfulness, a condition of general sin and that kind of thing. I think they had a frame of reference for what he was talking about, and I think that's the important part of this discussion. Study it more on your own. It's really fascinating. We're happy to talk about it. There's plenty of guys here that wanted to chime in on this conversation, so there's plenty of people that would study it with you and want to converse about it. It's really interesting stuff, really fascinating to talk about, but go study it on your own and and form your own opinion, and let's talk about that when you get there. But we should take comfort in the fact that that it hasn't happened yet. The Thessalonians were able to do that. They were able to be encouraged by the fact that he had not returned. They hadn't missed it, maybe more importantly, They hadn't missed his return. Can you imagine thinking because of what somebody said that the Lord returned? And if you have any inkling about what that event involves, you're thinking, I missed the boat. Something happened and I'm not involved in it. I missed the boat. And they could take comfort in that. And they could take comfort in the fact that there's hope for those that have died in the cross. Remember back that very first thing, don't grieve as others that have no hope. There's more to it than that. Okay. So with all that said in 2 Thessalonians, we're going to go back to our chapter now and, and finish out chapter 4 in 1 Thessalonians. We read 13 as we opened this morning. But we do not want you to be uninformed as others who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. A core tenet of Christianity Something that's foundational to our faith is the belief in a resurrection. The belief that Jesus died, he died for our sins, he died on the cross, he suffered in humiliating death, and he was buried and he rose again on the third day. It's a core tenet of our faith. And if you have misconceptions about the resurrection this morning, It's important that you understand that. It's important that you reconcile those misconceptions because it's foundational. If he didn't come out of the grave, none of this matters. And he says, because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those that are asleep. So all of those people that I don't want you to grieve about that have died in the Lord, it's because God's going to come back for them, and he's going to take them home. And that's an important and fundamental and foundational aspect of being a Christian. And if you don't believe that this morning, you need to study on that. You need to look to the scriptures on that and talk to people about it. Because if you don't believe that, everything else doesn't matter. And he talks about that actually in his letter to the Corinthians. I checked in with Danny on this to make sure he was a ways off, and he said at least a year, so I feel good about it. I don't think we can tackle this without reading this passage anyway, so I'm not really sure why I was checking in with him. I was using it either way. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's talking to the Corinthians about the resurrection and what that means. Listen to what he says. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So apparently, you know, as weird as it sounds, maybe there's members of the church saying there is no actual resurrection, you know, and, and maybe that's why he said, you know, what he says here at the end of this chapter. We'll read it here in just a sec. But they, there's somebody in their circle that says there's no resurrection of the dead. How can you say there's no resurrection of the dead is what he says. We've been proclaiming that Christ is, is raised from the dead. We've been teaching it. How can you say there's not? Because if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain 
and your faith in his faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Man, he says a lot right there. How can you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If you say there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ isn't raised. Christ wasn't raised from the dead. Because what you're really saying is if God doesn't have the power to raise the saints from the dead, he doesn't have the power to raise Christ from the dead. It sounds borderline blasphemous to accuse, to make that accusation. But he's just walking through this logically. If you're saying, you know, that God can't raise us from the dead, well, he couldn't raise Christ from the dead. If he can do one, he can do the other. But if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then everything we're telling you is in vain. And what you're doing is in vain, and your life is in vain. And how pitiful does that sound to think that if we're wrong about the resurrection of the dead, and maybe you don't believe that this morning. I look around this room, I think everybody here believes in the resurrection, but maybe you don't. But if we don't, if that... It's hard to think a dead body can rise again. That is not something our feeble minds can comprehend very well. But if you don't believe and have hope in that this morning, then you're sitting here wasting your time. And your faith is in vain. And everything that we're doing is pointless. And the people that sit outside the walls of this church that look at religion and say, you're an idiot for believing in a man in the sky. And you're believing, you're an idiot for thinking that there's this life after death. And you're an idiot for following something so blindly and having faith in something so blindly. If we don't believe in the resurrection from a dead, they are right. Everything we're doing is foolish and pointless and a waste of time. And we're teaching our children something that is a waste of time. And we're teaching them something that they're going to waste their lives on if we do it the way we're trying to do it. And we're wasting our lives on it. And we're sitting here this morning when we could be gearing up for football today or gearing up for work or school tomorrow. And we're wasting our time doing something that doesn't matter if the resurrection did not happen. And that's exactly what he was telling the Corinthians here. And the most sobering part of this that mirrors what he told the Thessalonians, if this didn't happen, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ then they don't have hope. Hope's gone. If there's no resurrection, what hope is there? If our hope is only in this life, if all of this Christianity stuff and this stuff we're doing and the time we spend together and the relationship we build, if all of that is for this life only to benefit us in this life, we're to be pitied more than all men. I think the King James uses the word uh, I just went blank. What is it? Miserable. All, we are of all men most miserable. It's a little bit different view of that. This is probably a more accurate word. We're to be pitied more, but it is a miserable existence. If we choose this life and none of that is true, it is a miserable existence. We get some benefit from that, but I would argue that if it wasn't true, the benefit we get from this would not exist. And the good thing is there's a but. The very next verse, he says, but... 
In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of dead. For as in Adam all die, also in Christ all shall be made alive. It's so encouraging to know that he rose from the grave. And as we said, it's fundamental and foundational to everything that we believe. And we're not wasting our time. And those that died in Christ, those loved ones that we know, it's not just for the Thessalonians, that part. That matters to us. The loved ones that have gone on in the Lord, there's hope. We don't grieve as others grieve. Sure, we're sad about it, and we cry tears, and we miss them. But we have hope that they're going to rise again. We have hope that we're going to see them again. And if we don't, we're of all men most miserable. Back in our text in chapter 4, he goes on then to describe what does it look like for we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air And so we will always be with the Lord. Remember, he just told them not to be ignorant concerning those that are asleep in Christ. Don't be ignorant about that. And in fact, they're going to get called first. I don't know that there's any significance to the fact that the dead in Christ will rise first before those who are still alive when he comes. But to me, he's kind of indicating, hey, it's almost kind of a you live the life You died in Christ, you're coming first. Do we care? If we're alive when he comes, do we care? As long as we're there. But they're taken care of. And he says, they're going to go first. Then those who are still alive will be caught up with him in the air. Isn't that comforting? He said it to the Thessalonians to comfort them. It's not a message of discouragement. It's not something meant to discourage them. It's meant to comfort them. He wants to correct that misinformation. He wants them to understand what this looks like and what it means. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons he's so descriptive about the second coming here with the the loud cry, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, why is he so descriptive about that? Because he's talking to the Thessalonians who've been told it had already happened, and they weren't sure if that was true or not. He's saying, you're not going to mistake it when it happens. When this goes down, you're going to know about it. Nobody's going to deceive you about this. You're going to know about it. And you get to go be with the Lord forever, forever with the Lord. And I don't want us to gloss over the fact of that. We can't comprehend what that means. We can't comprehend forever. You know, I love to travel, and we go on vacations whenever we can. And if you go somewhere for a week on vacation, two or three days toward the end of that, I start getting post-vacation depression before we even leave. I'm like, oh, I'm like a school teacher. You guys, the second school lets out in spring, school teachers are saying, I only got 127 days left till I got to go back to work. That's how I am with vacations. I've got, I only, we only got three days left. We're down to two. Tonight's our last night. Let's, let's, let's even go to the beach at dark and soak up every last minute of the ocean. Man, we got to go home back to reality. There is no post-vacation depression. It's forever, forever with the Lord. And he's coming back. And it's such an encouragement to us. It should be such an encouragement to us. There's one final verse here in chapter 4, 
And he, again, he talks more in chapter 5. We're going to talk about that next time. But he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So he has this whole lengthy spill about the second coming, what it looks like. Don't grieve over those loss. Encourage each other with this. And it's something that we should do. We should encourage one another with the idea of the second coming. He's coming back. There is a resurrection of the dead. And none of this is in vain. None of this is in vain. We all do this because we know when we believe and we have hope in that. We have hope that it's going to happen. And I hope the study this morning helps convince you of that. Challenge each of you to study some of these things, especially some of the difficult things we talked about. Go dig into those. I want to hear your thoughts and opinions. Maybe you can convince us that there is a, a, a conclusion we can get to. It's fascinating stuff to talk about, and it's stuff that we should look forward to. Wait on the Lord. We should wait on him, and we should live our lives in a way that reflects that. The things that we choose to do and say and act and people we interact with and the people that we build relationships all should be because we're waiting on the Lord and we're waiting for his coming. That was a message he wanted the Thessalonians to understand. Now, in 2 Thessalonians, he goes on a little more uh, to talk to them about this, trying to comfort them on this. And in chapter 1, he says, to you who are troubled, he's talking to them. They were a troubled people. They were being persecuted. They had challenging lives because they chose to be Christians. And he said, to you who are troubled, rest with us. Take comfort with us. He's coming back. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. He said, here's the deal. All these people that are persecuting you, you don't have to worry about it. It's not yours to deal with. Something's gonna happen there to the people that don't know God and that don't obey his gospel. And as we close this morning, if you're in that case, you need to give some consideration to the fact that he is coming back. And I remember hearing preachers my entire life say, you know, the, the Lord could come back today. And it's a, it's, a, it's a way for a preacher to pull on heartstrings, right? To, to encourage you to have a sense of urgency about your life. The truth is, statistically speaking, if nothing else, most of us are probably not going to see the Lord return. People have come and gone for generations and lived their life and served God, became a Christian and lived a full life and passed away. And that's statistically speaking, that's probably what we're, each of us is going to see. But we still need to be ready. There's still hope in death. And maybe we do see the Lord return. Either way, we should be waiting for that and looking for his coming. And we want to offer an invitation this morning. If you're here and you don't know the Lord and you haven't obeyed his gospel, think about that this morning. We'd be happy to study with you about it and encourage you to think about that and wait for the Lord in his coming. And if there's any need that you have this morning that the church can help you with, that invitation is extended to you as well. If you'll have a seat on the front as we sing, we'd be glad to help you with that.